0: This idea that somehow we're taking the firefighters out of the game, let's be clear. The WHO
1: are not the firefighters. It is the week of April 20th, and welcome to Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of foreign policy and national security. Today we have Dana Struhl, former senior staff member at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director and also former chief counsel and senior advisor at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. First time guest, Andrew Barine, NSI senior fellow and former associate deputy general counsel at the Department of Defense. And myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So last week, President Trump announced that he was halting US government funding for the World Health Organization, Uh, for 60 or 90 days, while the White House, his administration, conducts a review of the World Health Organization's handling of the coronavirus and its origins in China. Uh, Notably, uh, at stake here, the U.S. spends roughly half a billion dollars a year on the WHO, compared to about $12 billion a year annually that we spend on the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which of course is based in Atlanta, mostly for domestic programs, but also some international. So Andrew, um, this this is a, 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 this was a sudden move. People weren't expecting it. Uh, it's roiled Washington. There are, uh, everyone's got an opinion about what the president has done and whether this is a good idea or a bad idea. What, what can we say about the actual impact of this policy on the ground? Well, I mean, I think
2: that's a great place to start is the actual impact uh, on the ability of the World Health Organization to combat the pandemic is going to be massive. Uh, the United States is an incredibly significant contributor to their uh, overall operating budget. Uh, and so, so when we talk about uh, removing hundreds of millions of dollars in funding for the uh, primary international partnership that allows the United States to work with uh, our allies in the fight against uh, the the COVID-19 virus, um, I think we end up in a pretty dangerous position. The impact on World Health Organization uh, will be dramatic uh, and, and disruptive. Uh, and many of the critics, I think, of this decision uh, by the president and the Trump administration uh, come from a position that Uh, they'd like to see a policy based upon mend it, don't end it with regard to the World Health Organization. Uh, You know, I I think people on both sides of the aisle, uh, many of the kind of policy leaders uh, and, you know, folks on both sides of the aisle from Republicans and Democrats in Congress uh, have mentioned the importance of working through international alliances uh, to address what truly is a non-discriminatory threat to uh, our way of life uh, in the modern era. So, Um, I think uh, I think the critics uh, may have some high ground here uh, because kind of going to a defunding uh, and crippling, punishing type approach uh, in the face of what may have been some need for reform or uh, certainly it seems justifiable. The World Health Organization uh, could be doing a better job, uh, but but ceasing funding in this moment of crisis for our country and the world when the United States uh, really is the leading funder of that organization. Uh, I think most of the critics um, are suggesting it's a short-sighted move and maybe pennywise pound foolish as we try to restore normalcy to American society.
3: So I want to jump in here and just say, in terms of the immediate impact on the ground, it could be quite serious. So the Trump administration has characterized the failures of the World Health Organization because it was information provided to it by China about the coronavirus. But a lot of the functions of the World Health Organization are to assist countries who have weak or not resilient health systems. So a lot of the focus and a lot of our press attention is on what's happening in Italy, what's happening in Iran, what's happening here in the United States. What's really not on the front pages at all is what's happening in the Western Hemisphere, in Latin America, what's happening in Africa, what's happening in all of the countries in the Middle East that are not Iran. So when you hear about, only 30 cases in Syria or one case in Yemen. Clearly, that's not the case. What we're having here is countries that aren't reporting or transparent or lack the testing capability to actually know the state of coronavirus in their countries. So when we think about getting back to normal here, part of getting back to normal in our country is resuming travel, resuming international commerce, international flights, etc. Well, I'm not getting on a plane to anywhere in the Southern Hemisphere anytime soon, or Africa or the Middle East, because I completely lack confidence in those health systems and those governments to adequately take steps to counter and treat the coronavirus. And in some of those very underfunded, very weak governments, the World Health Organization fills some very critical gaps. And so it's not just about information, it's about what happens in all these other countries and parts of the world that are actually very reliant on the WHO. The US is the top funder of the WHO, after that is the UK and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Now hopefully there was some good budgeting here and if the Trump administration only suspends payments for 60 to 90 days until it conducts its strategic review and then figures out, oh actually the World Health Organization fulfills a really valuable and important role for us that protects American national security, they restore the funding and it doesn't severely hamper the World Health Organization's activities and functions. But it's pretty
1: serious so I want to I want to jump in here, Dana, and and agree largely agree with you. I think one of the I think the more important thing that WHO does on the ground is on uh, less so the capability of certain countryside, but more on the scientific side. When the virus first emerged in China, it was actually the WHO working with the Chinese that first got the genetic data about the virus to the US government. That's a, that is a critical step. I think a lot of the criticism of the WHO has focused on political statements and, and public relations and that kind of thing. Some of that is fair game, but on the technical side where the scientists live and work and where all of the real work is done to actually fight a pandemic and, a, and an attack by a virus, WHO really does play a critical role. It enables us to talk to governments we would otherwise not talk to. It's a bridge for scientists to talk to each other. It is is a way that we can all get along despite... All of our differences, and I'm not saying all the differences don't matter. I think the, the Chinese way of government is terrible, and ours is the best one. But you know, uh, there are times when the house is on fire. You need to have the firemen be able to talk to each other. That's one of the things that WHO does. And Jamil, I want you to react to this because I'm looking for someone, hopefully on this podcast, who can give credence to the complaints about WHO.
0: Well, look, I mean, Les, I mean, yeah, the the WHO does play a great bridge in certain ways or fill a lot of gaps, like Dana says. For example. It fills some great gaps in China's overt messaging strategy, right? By being out there and praising the Chinese repeatedly over and over again for their amazing response. All the while, uh, you know, the head of the WHO uh, was uh, was saying we shouldn't cut off flights to China until late February, even early March. And then all of a sudden, China starts to get its crisis on, uh, in its house in order. It starts cutting flights off to, to Italy. Nobody says to the WHO about that. In fact, uh, senior advisors of the WHO ignore questions about the success that Taiwan is having, uh, completely blow those questions off. I mean, it, it got so bad. I mean, don't take Donald Trump's word for it, right? Take the deputy prime minister of Japan who said the WHO should change its name to the Chinese health organization because that's what it really is. So look, I mean, I get it. Nobody likes Donald Trump and his, the way he talks about international institutions and he's aggressive and mean to people in the international community. Boo-hoo-hoo, all right? The WHO is a disaster. All right, let's just call for what it is. But maybe the money should have been completely cut off, and maybe there are some important things that it does, and maybe the money will be restored. It's only, been, it's only a 90-day pause, right? Let's see what happens, but let's tell them we're playing for real and that this, the way that they're behaving as essentially an, an arm of the Chinese government when it comes to messaging about the virus is completely inappropriate and takes the world
1: out of that organization's name. So Dana, one of the the things I've noticed about these complaints about the WHO is from the administration is that they're upset that uh, WHO officials from the top and and a little bit downward uh, have been very pro-China. Now, President Trump himself has specifically uh, praised the work of Xi Jinping on the coronavirus multiple times, in person, on camera, through Twitter, says nothing but good stuff about Xi Jinping. What in the world is that about?
3: Well, I suppose President Trump deeply believes in the conviction and strength and persuasion of his own personality to accomplish foreign policy or policy objectives that he believes are in the interest of protecting Americans and the American people, or perhaps it has something to do with trademarks and the Trump administration's uh, private interests. Regardless, the bottom line is the president at various times has leaned toward flattery of Xi Jinping or the Chinese Communist Party because he believes that's the best way to get to the deal or the outcome that he wants. And when it comes to the WHO, I'm not gonna disagree with Jamil about some of the very troubling statements and decisions that the organization's made about how to how to conduct its response. To the coronavirus. But the bottom line for the United States is are we better off influencing reform of the organization from within or being outside the tent entirely? In which case, it is definitely going to become the Chinese Health Organization and not the World Health Organization. And if the United States, the biggest funder, to the extent that the US brand still stands for something, if we're criticizing the WHO, that gives license to so many other governments to cooperate. Not work with, not provide information, not scientifically collaborate, which, less as you were saying, is one of the hallmarks of the WHO. If we turn our back on it, then all these other countries turn their back on it, and right now there is no other coordinating body with the worst pandemic we've seen since
1: 1918.
2: Andrew, yeah, and no, I, I mean, I, I want to address kind of a much a much broader issue that we're seeing emerge under the Trump administration and the Trump White House, right? Uh, and, you know, I mean, we can we can make jokes about the emotional boo-hoo-hoo side of it. But the fact is that there's a major tectonic shift toward bilateral relations uh, and toward toe-to-toe, head-to-head negotiation. The president and his close inner circle believe the United States is strongest outside of traditional alliances and international organizations. Uh, they attacked NATO. Uh, they undermined ASEAN. They've decided that it makes more sense to go head-to-head with China on anti-aerial denial. Uh, They've decided it makes more sense to go head to head with bilateral states in the European Union uh, over 5G implementation. Uh, You know, I mean, this this Corona crisis, the coronavirus crisis is just the latest now. uh, And unfortunately, uh, the world is in 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 essence, lockdown, uh, panic and crisis. uh, And it's a time when the United States under the last since let's say since 1947 National Security Act, Uh, and the advent of Bretton Woods and U.S. economic world leadership and control, uh, and I'm not afraid to say U.S. hegemony uh, over world economic health uh, and policy. Um, Let's let's say it that the United States has had traditionally uh, a strong policy of engagement, leadership, leveraging uh, the the dollars that we invest in these organizations. Uh, And I think certainly even if we look back to the George W. Bush uh, administration, we would see uh, a very, very strong bipartisan consensus that the United States uh, leads best using its carrots, right? Uh, and leveraging its, uh, its 800-pound gorilla status in organizations like WHO, the United Nations, uh, NATO, and elsewhere in order to get the outcomes that we need to see. Uh, and, and I'll also add that no, nobody is suggesting <clears throat> that, the, that the Dr. Tedros and the World Health Organization manage this perfectly. Nobody here in the United States has managed this perfectly. This is a black swan event that nobody saw coming for over 100 years. Uh, you know, I think we can say that they have been planning. George W. Bush himself, 2005, I uh, had a long conversation with, with Francis Townsend and said that we must have a pandemic response group. Uh, Democrats uh, under subsequent administration, Obama-Biden administration, uh, supported the NSC's establishment of a pandemic response cell. Um, and, you know, aside from blame game, which I don't think is helpful for anyone right now, um, I think what we need to do is look inside of ourselves and determine how do we want America to function in the world? Are we going to lead uh, with uh, positive leadership, leveraging our status as the key underwriter and investor into these organizations? Or have we decided that it's all America first and we're going to retreat into our shell uh, and treat everybody in the world on a bilateral uh, basis? And I just think when we face uh, a non-discriminatory public health crisis... Uh, that I'm not sure that the retreat into the shell model is the one that's gonna work best for American people uh, and uh, and also help encourage uh, reform in places like China where we're seeing just vast underreporting reporting of their numbers. I, I don't know how anyone could look at the doubling rates that China's reporting at 53 days or 30 plus days when the entire rest of the world is reporting doubling rates of eight days. So nobody is suggesting that China's being honest in this situation. But uh, those of us, I think on... Uh, on the side of the, you know, again, Republicans, and Democrats, both on the side of this argument that the WHO should not be defunded, uh, and that the United States needs to lead from a positive leadership presence and engage, uh, even with some of the parties who might not have 100% of our values in line. Uh, That's really the only way that we encourage uh, enemies and neutrals to become friends. And that's ultimately what the United States needs uh, when we face a non-discriminatory enemy like like a virus.
1: So uh I think we're not gonna we're not gonna get an argument on this podcast despite our our fault lines moniker. We're, we're working getting, on it though. We're working on it. I don't think we're getting an argument on the isolationism question and that the idea that retreating from the world is somehow good for US national interests or values. No, I don't think any of the four of us or really any of anyone else we've ever had on this podcast is gonna make that argument. Yeah. Uh but I do think we could have an argument over Uh, within the context of U.S. leadership, should we not pursue a more radical reform approach to international organizations and alliances? And Andrew, I would push back with you Mm -hmm. some on the NATO question. While I don't like all of President Trump's rhetoric on NATO, uh, I do like the fact that he has been willing to pressure our allies to step up and spend more money on defense. Now, I know President Obama did some of that. President Trump has you know, multiplied it by five or 10 and publicly called out countries and leaders for not doing the right thing by the alliance. I actually think, you're, you were at DOD, you may have a different view, that that strengthens the alliance. That in the long run, getting our European allies to step up, spend more money on defense, even even if the president can't characterize it in the right way and acts as if it's all going into some bank account somewhere, uh, really does help us in the long run. I think is, concurrently, I think his Russia policy is tougher than he's been given credit for.
3: I just want to say, first of all, the idea that NATO countries need to meet their defense spending commitments is not remotely new. In fact, former Defense Secretary Rob, Bob Gates, as his parting speech Two NATO members talked about this exact issue. The difference between the WHO issue and the NATO funding issue is that everyone, that the other member states needed to make meet their commitments. It wasn't about the U.S. withdrawing our funding in a way that would collapse NATO when NATO was perhaps being invaded by Russia. So there wasn't an active hot war at the time that the president threatened to withdraw from NATO or backtrack from Article 5. Um, that's the big difference. This is like... Pulling out all of the equipment from the fire in the middle, like taking the equipment away from the firefighters as they're fighting the fire. So it's one thing to have a conversation about structural systemic reform of the WHO, and I'm not disagreeing with that. It's another thing to threaten the funding to collapse the global response to a pandemic that does not respect borders in the middle of the crisis.
1: All right, so let's let me push a little bit on that, Dana. Uh, Speaker Pelosi, you know, who is in the line of succession to be president, uh, who's who's probably the second most powerful person in Washington, said that putting a hold on funding for the WHO was illegal. Is that true?
3: So I think what maybe she meant by illegal is a consistent pattern by the Trump administration of ignoring Congress and congressional prerogatives. And what she meant by that is because Congress authorizes and appropriates the funds, it is the job of the executive branch to obligate and spend those funds. And so what she was saying is this is a congressional executive argument and that for the current fiscal year, Congress appropriated a certain amount of money Part of that was uh, voluntary contributions of the U.S. government to the WHO and the Trump administration is not spending that money, which would be consistent with previous decisions of the Trump administration to ignore the will of Congress, for example, military aid to Ukraine, um, economic assistance to the West Bank in Gaza, et cetera, et cetera.
0: It's, it's kind of like uh, the violation of the law that the Obama administration engaged in, when they ignored a direct congressional prohibition on transferring detainees from Guantanamo Bay without prior notification to Congress. That was actually a statutory restriction that they completely blew through. These are debates about national security prerogatives and what you have to spend money allocated. That was a bar. Clearly executed in Congress's power of the purse. So this idea somehow that presidents of all stripes and of all times are not taking the position that in certain scenarios where the national security demands it or or foreign policy demands it, They can't uh, ignore Congress as well. And by the way, Congress has a solution to that. They can pass another law and override a presidential veto. It's just people in Congress don't have the guts to do that, right? They can also remove the president, which, of course, is an extreme measure. We're not talking about that. But Congress doesn't even have the guts to go with a two-thirds majority and try to beat the president in his own game, whether this president or the prior president. Um, By the way, mind you, President Obama also abused the authority given to him in the Iran nuclear deal, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) we got a million different reasons. But to get to the point about the WHO, it's not like – this is their first big screw-up, right? They botched the Ebola crisis in Africa between 2014 and 2016, which killed over 11,000 people, infected over 28,000 people. The same WHO was late to the game there. They didn't call it a, a global uh, uh, epidemic uh, or pandemic. I forget which which the pandemic, I realize, is the world one. Epidemic was more localized. I forget which one that one ended up being. I think it ended up being a pandemic. Um, but whatever it was, they didn't declare that in a reasonable amount of time. I mean, this is, this is the, this is a long history of WHO. And by the way, this idea that somehow we're taking the firefighters out of the game, let's be clear. The WHO are not the firefighters. They're administrators who are helping get information and the like. These are not doctors without borders going, you know, you know, glove on the, on the target, solving the problems. I mean, this is, this is uh, an overstatement on what the WHO does. Uh, We're not pulling firefighters out of the fight and there's plenty of money in the WHO's budget. We're just pulling our funds temporarily. And to Andrew's point, I agree that we should uh, lead and we should we should play the 800 pound gorilla uh, in the room and use that status uh, when we when we have it, these international organizations. Guess what? That's what we just did. Now, you might you might disagree with the tone in which it was done, the attitude, the the words that were said, even maybe pulling out of the funding temporarily. It's not like the funds are gone. They're not ever going to be they're never going to come back, right? This is a temporary restriction on funding to have a conversation and to make a point. We are the 100-pound gorilla, and you need us. And so, yes, we could lead with carrots all the time, but sometimes sticks have their place, too. You know, and, and you would think, you know, people who believe in a regulatory state, you'd understand the use of sticks. So, hey, this is just a big stick and the president's using it. Again, I'm not going to condone the tone or the attitude or the endorsement of Xi Jinping or its constant, you know, intrigues to Putin but I will say there are times at which it's okay to pull funding for internationalization. This might be one of them
2: right now. The coronavirus is storming across the world. America leads the world in the number of confirmed cases at this point and deaths. This is not a time for the United States to back off and start punishing our allies. We need our allies. We need these international organizations. And that's why I think you're seeing a lot of the adults in the foreign policy community really raise up and start being concerned about the over isolationism uh, that 's being coming from the White House at this time, so you know I mean we, we could we can go back and talk about how Obama did this wrong or the Ebola crisis was wrong, but we need to look at the facts as they are today, and we are involved in a hot war against a virus that is killing people around the world, disrupting economies. This has already cast the world economy into the biggest recession that we 've had since the crash of one thousand nine hundred and twenty nine so we really need to act like our house is on fire and start working in the bucket brigade with our allies, not retreat into our homes, not move into some Luddite response about we're going to just let herd immunity take over and kill everybody uh, until we end up with whoever's left. Uh, and and I, I mean, honestly, I think that's why you're seeing these concerns, because it, this, this pattern of pulling out of international agreements that have stood the test of 70 years and kept the United States in a leadership position and kept the United States economy on top of the world, right, have been challenged dramatically in the past four years. In the time of the House being on fire with the coronavirus, this is one example of isolationism gone wrong. And that's why I think we're seeing a lot of senior officials from both parties being very critical of the withdrawal funding for WHO.
0: We can cite senior officials from both parties over and over again. It doesn't change the fact The WHO has been a mouthpiece for the Chinese government for this entire crisis, and they need to pay a price for that.
2: So So who's failing? Who's failing if the WHO is the mouthpiece of the Chinese government, but the United States is the biggest single contributor? Who's been the president for the past three years? We just just brought it to bear. We just brought that pressure to bear. So he just just got aware that the WHO wasn't very good at its job? The
0: the exact point you made, right, which is that we need to be the 100-pound gorilla. We're beating the 100-pound gorilla. You just don't like it. And I get it. Oh, it's so tough. We're being mean to international organizations. The, the idea that the House is on fire and that if we pull funding from the WHO for 90 days, that it's going gonna, it's gonna to completely impede coronavirus response is a joke. The WHO has plenty of money. We're making a point. Don't be the mouth of the, of the Chinese government. You want to play and do this job and you want our funding since we're the biggest funder of your organization, you play it right. You play it straight. It
2: I think this is scapegoating right after failures in the White House. I mean, and, and I think I, that I'm not this, alone. I, A lot of people are saying that, that this is failures in the White House, the White House did nothing throughout February, and now they're trying to throw the WHO under the bus for their own failure to communicate no what place. WHO was telling them all throughout February out of Geneva and elsewhere around the world. Well,
1: but Andrew, with the with the amendment that uh, they can't, the president can't attack China because we are so reliant on China even today. For supply chain issues in the medical field, for uh, pharmaceuticals, for personal protective equipment, for all of the things that you need to fight a pandemic, we're still relying on China. So the direct attack on China for its handling of the virus early on in uh, late December, early January is off the table. So there's... Uh, the, the politics are here are it seems to be the presence instead of attacking where it's merited is finding another another place to attack
3: the question about whether or not the who is in need of reform or became the mouthpiece for the chinese government is one issue but the question for us is how do you influence change or how do you make make our view as the largest donor to the who heard. So just cutting funding is a blunt force instrument that demonstrates no nuance in the execution of diplomacy. There's a robust communications strategy by many members of the Trump administration to go on the attack about China, suppressing information, hiding information, not being transparent about uh, the number of deaths, etc. There are plenty of ways to influence the WHO without the blunt force instrument of cutting funding, and frankly, to cut funding up front rather than a sequential incremental engagement plan to get the changes in the organization that you want with the ultimate threat of cutting funding, right? Or some sort of conditionality to the funding. That's the thing about the Trump administration is that if you, the, the notion that the WHO is in need of reform, I, I don't disagree with that. And and Jamil laid out many of the reasons why, as did you, Les. But the question is, how do you achieve what you want? So in a situation in which the United States right now has the highest number of fatalities from coronavirus, is inwardly focused on saving lives inside our country, and is soliciting developing countries for contributions, right, for PPE, etc. And then to take ourselves out of the game of the international response, the exchange of scientific information, etc, just seems to me like totally boneheaded. If the idea is that the Chinese are eating our lunch by, even if it's crappy equipment, right? Providing ventilators, providing PPE all over the world, offering loans, et cetera. We're going to be inwardly focused. They're going to offer loans and grants all over the world to all of these countries. And then we're basically seeding the space of the WHO in addition to all these other international organizations where the Chinese see an opportunity to contest U.S. influence.
1: All right. This is a great topic, by the way, that we should revisit. So let's, t- let's talk about an amazing story that appeared in the Washington Post uh, a few days ago by uh, a guy who's normally a columnist, Josh Rogan, who did some great reporting, uh, got some cables out of the State Department. And it turns out that American diplomats had actually visited a virus lab in Wuhan, China, that was working on coronavirus and bats two or three years ago and expressed concerns in writing about the security at the lab. So it's a phenomenal uh, find for Josh, who's uh, I think a terrific writer and also it turns out is a great reporter. Uh, it was confirmed by other news organizations that this is true uh, frankly, I think it 's amazing that this hasn't that this didn 't come out earlier so uh, I think while we 're all distracted by tweets and chirons and uh, you know, the political uh, battles that go on, uh, someone finally was doing actual reporting. Thank goodness. Uh, let's let's have a quick discussion about what the implications of this are for the way we think about coronavirus and U.S. relations with China. Uh, Rogan's piece was actually really incredible
2: uh, and 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 really timely, relevant, uh, and and I think uh, it, it underlies actually probably where we all have a lot of agreement on this call uh, that China has not been transparent. China is in fact a totalitarian regime. Uh, it is not in what I think any of us in in uh, kind of uh, 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 professionals in the U.S. foreign policy uh, ecosystem would think of as in the rule of law club, um, that uh, the, they, they have a highly consolidated ideological uh, position. And uh, Rogan's piece, I think, is really relevant because there was uh, an echo chamber that started uh, in, in, and again, in the U.S. on both sides of the political aisle, uh, that there was an echo chamber of, well, this definitely arose from a wet market. This definitely was a naturally occurring thing. It had nothing to do with the Wuhan lab. Uh, we really support China in this and, and shame on, uh, on all of those uh, that kind of came into this with an a priori assumption. Um, and I think uh, both sides of the political aisle, in the United States, uh, those in the House, those in the Senate and those in the White House uh, agencies really should be cautious uh, and wait until there is a conclusion of a formal U.S. government investigation, leveraging all the resources of the intelligence community, diplomatic community, and the scientific community to kind of get better transparency. And I think um, this could be one of those moments where we can learn from things like the WMD Commission uh, and, uh, and the 9-11 Commission uh, and avoid a rush to judgment. So, uh, you know, I mean, I, th- I think um, the Rogan piece was timely and my, my advice to all those even that kind of share my own worldview of, of progressive values and international collaboration uh, is be wary before you jump on any uh, conclusion on what the origin of the virus was, uh, and, and let's, let's really encourage uh, the White House to push U.S. resources from intelligence diplomatic and scientific channels uh, to get to the bottom of what the source was. Uh, and, and we can do that. We can do we can walk and chew gum. We can both fight the public health crisis and also dedicate resources to getting the ground truth uh, on what happened. And we and we need to be honest about the fact that China has not been uh, a straight shooter uh, going all the way back to, to December of 2019 when they saw these cases emerging. Uh, and um, so, yeah, so, so that was a long answer. But I think we're going to find a lot of collective agreement that, that China is the bad actor in this, not the W.H.O., and that we really do need U.S. government resources to get us some ground truth, and everyone would be well advised to wait until those answers come back from a formal uh, intelligence community and diplomatic assessment.
1: Well said. Dana?
3: So, one thing that was so surprising to me about that Josh Rogan piece is the fact that we have diplomats at our consulate in Wuhan who were, who were given tours of this facility, of this lab, at a very high hazard level, um, biohazard level four, I believe. So. The piece actually said they visited twice and sent back multiple cables about their concern about the safety protocols. So one, we have talked about the value of, uh, on this podcast, among this group, about all the tools in the National Security Toolbox, including our diplomats. Well, this is just fascinating. Not our intelligence agency, not our military, but it's the diplomats who actually used diplomacy to visit, we have scientific science science focused diplomats who visited this facility and sent cables back and by the way in an administration who's been so focused on a china strategy these cables went unaddressed for multiple years in the pompeo state department one of the people that's part of the the group with president trump who's been after china on all these different things this should have raised alarms a long time ago so in an administration which is attacked diplomats, defunded the State Department, and sought to deprogram or defund all of these programs, this should be a reminder to us about the value of diplomacy and these sort of scientific engagements that we don't actually need to do all of it through the WHO anyway.
0: Jameel? Look, I think, obviously, um, the the new reporting uh, coming out of uh, Josh's report and the like uh, indicates something very interesting, right, which is that maybe, in fact, this is the Wuhan virus or the yeah. Chinese virus, right? Again, not, not suggest that it was bioengineered or the like, um, and that maybe President Trump had a point, uh, or that Tom Cotton, who was mocked roundly by the foreign policy community uh, for saying that this uh, might have come out of a Chinese lab. Again, it's one thing to say it was bioengineered. That's, that appears to not be the case. It seems like the best scientific reporting continues to suggest to us that it's a naturally occurring virus. Uh, but the idea that it came out of a, a lab, one of the, either this BSL-4 lab, Uh, that Dana mentioned, or the BSL-2 lab, that's also in the same uh, neck of the woods. Um, You know, we've long known that the first victim uh, or the first person diagnosed uh, with uh, this virus was not associated with the wet market. So we've always known that there's been something suspicious to the story uh, that it was a wet uh, market-associated virus. Moreover, that that there were clusters of cases outside the wet market. So the only question is, where did this virus really begin? There's a lot of theories about it one theory could be coming out of a lab. And again, it does have to be intentional, right? Let's be very clear, right? This could be an error, it could be a mistake, it could have been a waste product that leaked out, uh, that that escaped from the lab while they're doing uh, studies to determine the ideology of the virus. It doesn't necessarily mean they were doing gain of function studies that were designed to make the virus more effective. It simply could be they were studying the virus itself, a virus, a bat coronavirus as it appears to be. Um, But I think it is is indicative, uh, as Andrew and Dana both said, uh, of the Chinese government's uh, problem here and their failure to adequately talk about what happened, their efforts to cover it up, their efforts to suppress uh, the reporting about it and what they've done with scientists there is, is very problematic. Um, so, and I think this point is a fair one, which is that, you know, these were these were scientific diplomats. I, you know, query diplomats, right, um, whether, who was, who was actually on this little trip. I don't think you send uh, the usual State Department folk out to uh, BSL-4 lab, but, you know, whatevs. Um, so, anyhow, we'll see. We'll see how this all plays out. Uh, but I'm not sure, Dana,
2: that I'd really be relying on the diplomacy angle on this one. I was want to say, I, th- I think we're not actually in unprecedented territory. Um, if we look at the Chernobyl crisis of 1986, uh, Russia closed totalitarian regime, pushing scientific limits outside what was safe to advance and try to compete with U.S. and allied industry in the atomic space, Right. Uh, An accident occurred, they tried to cover it up with lies, misinformation, uh, lied about the casualties and the health to their own people. Um, It it led to a cloud that went over Sweden and Western Europe and caused birth defects. And and we had to get the international community together to help Russia, to help them recover, to help reduce the damage, not only inside their borders to their own people, but elsewhere. And I think, uh, and and, and I just throw this out there as a, as a, a food for thought. Um, It might be worth all of us uh, that that are kind of in these foreign policy circles to start thinking about how did the U.S. uh, respond to Chernobyl and what did we do right? Because China was pushing scientific safety in those Wuhan labs. Uh, The argument in the Rogan article and elsewhere seems to be that not that they were trying to develop weapons to kill uh, allied uh, populations, but they were merely trying to compete with our scientists who out-innovate and out-compete them. That's why they use their intelligence agencies to steal our scientific data. And so now they, uh, shame on them, egg on their face, uh, massive crisis. But I think uh, maybe, maybe a historical example we can look at in recent time is the Chernobyl disaster. Uh, what went right? What can we do to take positive action uh, from a U.S. leadership perspective? Uh, and even though there's been some dishonesty and we need um, collective action now, um, and, and, and I guess I just say that as an individual American looking for ways that we can all start working together uh, to mitigate what really is the biggest disaster of my lifetime.
1: Well, and uh, notable that there are these fires in the area around Chernobyl right Indeed. now, and and the smog. Uh, these areas that are still radioactive, and the smog um, is uh, seems to be accumulating over over Kiev, over Kiev, uh, the capital of Ukraine. Um, unclear, uh, at least to me, what the danger is. Uh, Okay, let's wrap up that combo and go to the part of the podcast quickly where we talk about issues we are following that are not necessarily in the headlines. I will go first and mention that um, oil prices are, again, at an all-time historic low, the lowest they've been in 34 years, $20 a barrel. This despite the fact that President Trump has regularly been on the horn with Vladimir Putin and uh, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia and has said he has worked out a deal and that um, this low price amazingly impacts U.S. producers in all kinds of red states, in the Dakotas, in Pennsylvania, in Texas, that are going to be critical for the president's reelection. So the politics here are obvious. The weird thing is that normally it's high gas prices that are a problem for the U.S. Now it's very low gas prices that are a problem for the U.S. Okay, um, that's the issue I'm following. Dana, what are you looking at?
3: I am looking at the conflict in Yemen, which is heating up again, even though Saudi Arabia declared a ceasefire last week. Um, what's interesting to me about this also relates to what uh, Les was talking about, which is you know, usually it's high gas prices. Now it's low gas prices. But one common uh, thread between what he is talking about, what I'm talking about is Saudi Arabia. In this case, the Obama administration in many ways um, Distance itself from Saudi Arabia and its conduct in Yemen. The Trump administration has taken the opposite approach, really embraced both publicly and with military support Saudi Arabia. So whether Saudi Arabia feels the warm embrace of the United States or um, is given the Heisman, either way, they still cannot end this conflict in Yemen.
0: Jamil. Yeah, I'm following the uh, arrest of 14 democracy activists in Hong Kong, uh, with China using uh, what Democracy activists in Hong Kong are calling a golden opportunity of the coronavirus to once again take action. Uh, this was uh, activities by the Hong Kong government, of course, uh, supported by the mainland government. Um, and the real concern here is that you've got legislative council elections coming up in September, um, and this is yet another effort uh, by the Chinese government uh, to clamp down on pro-democracy protesters. Yet again, another failed opportunity, missed opportunity uh, for the United States to say something or do something about uh, Chinese misbehavior, um, in the region. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got it, we've got to get more aggressive regardless whether we rely on China for all these goods or not. Uh, we've got to be calling them out for what's happening. And, uh, and that's a concern. Andrew.
2: Yeah. So I think, uh, what I've been looking at a lot lately is the expansion of disinformation campaigns, uh, and threat to the American populace. It actually ties in with our conversation about China and WHO. Um, the national counterintelligence and security center part of the Office of Director of National Intelligence has released a number of alerts lately uh, that they're observing uh, foreign-funded activity, not only by Russia, as we saw in 2016, to divide Americans and spread disinformation uh, and propaganda, but China is now undertaking uh, very similar campaigns to try to spin the American populace uh, into believing things that may not be true about the coronavirus. So. Um, you know, uh, of of extreme concern in this regard. Uh, Last month, China expelled the New York Times, Washington Post and Wall Street Journal uh, from their country's borders. Uh, So I think what we, you know, what I'm watching and what I'm very concerned about is that um, in the midst of a 2020 election year, uh, it's really important that Americans stick together uh, across political, ideological divides. And remember what unites us uh, when we have extremely well-funded and uh, well-researched uh, opposition from Russia and China uh, working to divide us on platforms like Facebook, Twitter uh, even TikTok. so um, you know I, 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 on the upside I've seen some reporting that indicates the American people in the last three and four years have become increasingly circumspect about what they read on their social media channels uh, and that they also do not trust the algorithms uh, that are feeding them news stories on those social media platforms so Um, You know, I guess I've got a a bad news, good news story. Bad news, a lot more misinformation coming at us as Americans. Good news, uh, the American public as a whole seems to be getting a lot uh, smarter uh, about how they critically think about the information presented to them on the Internet.
1: I love it when we can celebrate the critical thinking of Americans. (laughs) Uh, Andrew, great job. Thanks for joining us. That is a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing Alex Morgan for research assistance, and of course, huge props to Grant Haber, our producer and director. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.